Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Okay, yeah, so today we're going to be mainly in um, John 4 and we're carrying on this series of what it really is to follow Jesus. And today I'm going to be really ambitious, you know, I usually promise to say I'm going to be really short and then about 45 minutes I decide I probably should stop. Uh, I'm actually going to do two sermons today. Um, I'm going to do the same sermon twice. Uh, my title that I've given myself is uh, Following Jesus uh, Led to Change from Wells to Springs. Okay, and the idea is, it's a little bit of a metaphor, you'll, you'll get it when we go into the... Uh, the text, but the idea is, is that a well is a static thing. It's got a wall built around it. Water just kind of, it's, it's, it's a pit that's dug to where the water really is. Whereas a spring is a bubbling brook where it just flows out and then it becomes a stream and then it becomes a river and then it becomes a delta and then it becomes the sea. And so <coughs> oftentimes we think really small, really static um, about God. We think really small but nice things about God. Uh, we think really great but static things about God. Um, but actually, and we kind of adhere to or mentally assent to the fact that God is life, that he's moving, that he's always, you know, and the idea of following is motion. You know, um, Judas Smith says the imperative word of the Christian faith is go. So there's motion, there's some sort of motion about it. Um, so I'm going to kind of preach the same sermon twice, I'm going to do it what we usually hear. And then I'm going to do it um, a little bit differently. Um, so this week, if you've, if you've uh, seen on Facebook, Emma, Emma somehow got into her head that we were going on holiday. She decided that we were going on holiday. Um, and, and we were going back to this hotel up north uh, near where Nick's brother is. We were going to stay for two nights. It became three nights. Um, and then we were going to have ice cream with, with, with Matt and his uh, girlfriend and their, their daughter. And then on this kind of, this story in her head began to gather sort of momentum to the point where it was like she actually thinks we're doing that this weekend. <laughs> and so Nick broke it to her uh, on the way home on, on Friday. You know, we're not actually going on holiday. And then was like, okay, mummy. And then two seconds later, she was just, you know, but we can pretend. And she was like, okay. And she kind of did the, the drama face, you know, it was like, I'm, centered. I'm, in my, I'm, in my, I'm in my role. She was like, so we're going to the hotel now. And when they got, got home, she was like looking around the house as if it was a hotel. Look at the rooms. They're so nice. Um, and so for whatever reason it was, we decided just to go with it. Okay, we're, we're going on holiday. And so we immersed ourselves in this narrative that she'd created. And so Saturday, obviously, we were all around yesterday. It was wet. It was cold. Um. But because we'd immersed ourselves in this narrative, all of a sudden breakfast was like this pancake breakfast and I was the, I was the baker man, so I was, I was making breakfast and we had these pancakes and then we went out foraging for uh, conkers for the house because Nick loves autumn and everything. And it's this big adventure and then we went off to a place called the Badger Cafe at Brandon Marsh and, and had like lunch and, and it was just like, you know, it was wet, dull, dreary, cold and usually wet, dull, dreary, cold, kids locked indoors not being able to do anything. You know, it's, a, it's not a great weekend. But, but because we immersed ourselves in this greater story, all of a sudden there was life. There was, there was this kind of, everybody gave themselves to it. So me and Nick, you know, we just surrendered ourselves into this greater narrative. And there's something about the bigger narrative of God that's going on from, from Genesis 1 all the way through to Kingdom Come, you know. And, and the problem is, is we take little episodes of the narrative of God, these static, small ideas and then we develop all sorts of things from these little episodes so we'll, we'll develop theories and principles and and then but it only kind of works in that narrow scope and then you know either the principle breaks down if you take another bit of scripture or what about in the old testament or what about ecclesiastes or what about revelation you know it gets difficult so the text we're going to do is uh, john 4 which is the woman at the well so we're all fairly familiar with that story so I'm not going to read it the first time through. I'm just going to kind of glide through it. So what we have is, is Jesus and his disciples are baptising near John. 
And the Pharisees are like, well, you know, John the Baptist is baptising, and then you've got Jesus baptising. Um, and Jesus kind of gets wind of the, the Pharisees getting a bit irate about that, so he moves on. And he decides he has to go through Samaria. And, and so, you know, there's a bit of an antagonistic relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus really didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have gone around it like all normal Jews would have gone around Samaria. But he goes through Samaria and, and then it's kind of midday and, and Jesus is getting tired. You know, son of God getting tired, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he sits down at this well and he says to his, you know, he says to his crew, his posse, his gang, right, you go into town. I know that's going to be awkward for you. But you go into town and get some food. I'm just going to sit here and... And then, you know, the disciples gave him a bit of grief about being an old man and, and, and being tired before they are and everything. And so he sits down at this well, and there's this woman at the well, a Samaritan woman at the well. And then they have this dialogue, this really bizarre, strange dialogue, because she's a woman, so in that day, probably uneducated. She's at the, the well at the middle of the day, which suggests that she's avoiding everybody else. And then they, they launch into this dialogue, and Jesus says, oh, can I have some water? And she says, wait a minute, you, you're a Jew. <laughs> you, you can't drink from my pot because that'll make you unclean, right? And Jesus says to her, you know, like, if you knew who it was that was asking you, then you'd have asked me for water and I'd have given you living water. And then the Samaritan woman's a bit confused, but all of a sudden she turns into, you know, a grade A theologian. And she says, but you haven't got anything to draw with. And then they enter this dialogue and Jesus is saying, you know, um, you know, but if you knew me, if you knew who it was, she's saying, but you're a Jew and you worship over here and we worship here. And he says, yeah, but there's going to be a time when, you know, worshippers, true worshippers will come and worship in spirit and in truth and it won't matter which mountain. And then they have this kind of back and forth about, about these theological ideas and drinking water at the same time. And then Jesus says, okay, fine. And then all of a sudden, the, the conversation grinds to a disjointed halt. And he says, yeah, go call your husband then. And then she says, um, yeah, but I ain't got a husband. And he says, you're right. And so, uh, you know, if I was trying to sell a prophetic ministry book, bang, word of knowledge, Jesus' word of knowledge. Son of God, so he's going to have this divine download from the spirit or something. And he says, yeah, you've had five. And the guy you're with now uh, isn't your husband. And so... He's kind of had this word of knowledge, that's why she's at the well, because she's, she's had many husbands. Because being married many times is somehow a bad thing. Because like, what we like to say about her is she's very promiscuous. But actually, if you think in the Middle East at that time, she'd have been like 15 when she got married the first time, but her husband would probably be about 40. So, you know, probably popped his clogs, and then it's fine to marry again. So I don't know why she has all this stigma, but somehow she's at the well at midday, at uh, the hottest time. And then... The disciples come back and, and she's a bit spooked by these, you know, 12, 12 Jewish lads. You know, a gang, looking like a gang. So she heads back off to the village and says, come and see the guy who told me everything I ever did. So all Jesus has said is, you've had five husbands. You know, he could have been on Facebook. You know, pretty, co- you know, a woman like that, it'd be gossip for the town, right? So he could have known it from anywhere. But she goes back to the town anyway and this is... This is a brick sort of evangelical proclamation. Uh, this dude told me some things. Uh, and then, G- and while she's away, Jesus is having this dialogue with his disciples. You know, he's like, they're like, oh, uh, Jesus, we've got some food. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm, I'm not hungry anymore. You know, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And they're like, d- d- what? Wait, you told us to go get, you know, go to Subway and get you some, you know, a six inch, you know, Mexican sub or something. And, and he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good now. And then the whole village comes out on the basis that Jesus had told this woman that she'd had five husbands and that she's, not, she's living with a guy that's not her husband. And for some reason, this means that the village that had rejected this woman because she's at the well at midday, all of a sudden suddenly believes her, telling them about something they already knew about. So they come out. Oh, you must be the Messiah. Bit weird, right? But that's the story we've heard. That's the story we learned. And because, and, but what the, the key point of the story is, is that, oh, well, there is this, this word of knowledge. And look how a word of knowledge unlocks something. And I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I know it sounds a bit disparaging the way I'm saying it now, but that's true. Word of knowledge does that stuff. But don't you think it's a little bit weird that a whole village gets saved from not that spectacular word of knowledge? But 
anyway, you know, let's, let's do the article. Come on. Uh, everybody wants to work in words of knowledge. I'll lay my hands on you and, and something. And so what we've done is we've taken this, this story and we've boiled it down into some principle. And it's all about words of knowledge and that's it. Okay. Um, I, I'd probably say that that's a, that's a pretty good uh, teaching. Very, uh, very empowering. You know, we could have the whatever it is at the end, and, and, and people would go away empowered and, and feeling invigorated. So the next time you go to Tesco or Sainsbury's or what, you're like, you know, I've got a word of knowledge for you, or like, I want to pray for you. I can, uh, you've got something wrong with your knee or something. You know that um, what's it, uh, treasure hunting type thing, and that's amazing. You know, just wonderful evangelistic tool. But you know, we've made it small. We've made it a well. We've made it static. We've made it in one place. You know, well, I keep having to return back to needing a word of knowledge. To unlock the village or the person. And, and, and it's static. It's not moving, you know. Even though we talk, it's in the spirit and we're just flowing within the prophetic and whatever. But we've made it small. There's, there's nothing of the grandeur of scripture. There's nothing about, what, about Jesus or, or the reconciliation of all things. And I want to suggest to you that this text in John is all about the reconciliation of all things. Um, so just to give you a better feel of two sermons... We're going to go, and you guys are going to sit at that table, and I'm going to doodle on the whiteboard. anticipate the greatness of the kingdom of God for what it is. So those of you that have been reading simply Jesus, the words of the language of N.T. Wright is that, is that you know, the, the world and the kingdom of heaven overlap in places. So places like um, communion or prayer or, or when we read the scriptures. But in ourselves as well, this is the thing, that the overlap of the kingdom of heaven is within us as well. And so there's thin places and sometimes we peel back the veil to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and I'd contend that the gospel of John isn't like any of the gospel. The other gospels kind of work in a starts here, ends there, it's chronological, it's like a history. Jesus did this and then he did that, and then he went here and then he did this and then he said this and then he taught this and he met this person and did and then, you know, look at the story once upon a time, happily ever after. John sort of ruminated on everything he'd seen for like the best part of 50, 60 years before he put pen to paper. Famously at the end of John it says, you know, if I was to write down everything about Jesus, there'd be not, there'd be not enough space in the world to contain all of us. So John, you know, he picks seven miracles to cover. Why seven? Everything about the book of John is pulling out all these grand themes of scripture from all over the place. And just again and again, just saying all of these promises, all of these things are met in Jesus. Let me show you how the grand narratives of the Old Testament, all these ideas and themes that run through the Old Testament, let me show you how they're embodied in Christ. And you know, so on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus meets two guys and they don't, rec- they don't recognize them, and he, said, you know, he takes them through the Torah and explains how everything points to him. And he's not saying, I'm completely okay with, you know, the slaughter of thousands and the conquest of Canaan. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, this is where I was. This is how this points to me. This is how this is an echo, a a forewarning, a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. But I'm here now. And the kingdom is here. You know, he goes around saying, the kingdom is near and it is amongst you. And so everything that John talks about all layers up into this. So first off, 
when we talk about the woman of the world, we can't start with the woman of the world because all of the narratives in John are all entwined. It's like a rich tapestry. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's start from John 3. But first of all, let's recall what's happened in John 1 and John 2. So in John 1, we have uh, the great narrative about in the beginning. So that immediately ties John right back to what? Genesis 1.1. Then it goes on to the calling of the disciples, right? And so what did the disciples talk about when they're being called? This is the one who Moses spoke about. This guy's leading us on a new exodus. So you've got Genesis, you've got the rest of the, 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 the first five books of the Bible, you've got the rest of the Pentateuch. Then in chapter 2, what have you got? You've got the wedding at Cana. Okay, so we tap into another theme. So you've got, you've got origin, you've got calling, you've got wedding. So the wedding language of the Old Testament. So think about things like Hosea or Isaiah where, you know, Wedding is talking about the culmination of all things. It's talking about the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, when God fills all in all. This is when God's kingdom comes. So wedding is always about celebration. You know, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this is the language that we have. And what does he do at the wedding? But he takes something ordinary like water. He turns it into wine. And wine through the Old Testament, again, is talking about celebration, jubilee, the restoration of all things, people being joyful and glad in their hearts. So already, we're into John 2, we've got layers already. John 3 then. Nicodemus. Being born of the Spirit. There's something about being born of this water and there's a Spirit. And there's something about that that is about the kingdom somehow. And now talk in terms of um, life of the age to come or eternal life. And don't, don't be misled by the idea of eternal life. It's not long periods of time. It's not stuff that happens after you die. It's, it's life of the age to come. So the messianic age, life in the messianic age is probably uh, a more sturdy idea rather than eternal life. So it's not playing a harp on a cloud after you die. It, it, it's like living in the fullness of the kingdom of God now. Okay, so when they talk about eternal life. And then it talks about John the Baptist. So into 3.22. Uh, after this... Um, so that's the discourse about God's own word again. After this, Jesus' subs went out to the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them <laughs> and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing near Anon, near Selim, and there's, where there was plenty of water and people were coming to be baptized. There's a plentitude of water, okay? So, water is a big thing. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, talking about Jesus, he's baptised and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given. So we're talking about gift. Okay, pay attention to the word given or gift. So a person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. So John is testifying about Jesus. And this is setting up what's going to happen in the rest of John. Just like the wedding is setting up ideas that are coming up in the rest of John. So a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. So we're talking about the heaven, we're talking about the reign of God. You yourself testify and say that I'm not the Messiah, but I'm only sent up ahead of him. So John's saying, look, I'm the one that comes before him, but I'm not the guy. The bride, so we're getting into wedding language. Wedding, marriage, bride. Belongs to the bridegroom, Jesus the bridegroom. So it's happening to Hosea again, like God being the husband of a, of a, of a wife that fails him time and again. The friend who attends the bridegroom and waits and listens to him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and now is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above, again when they talk about above, it's not above, it's in physical location above. We're talking about, um, so if you remember John Master Giovanni, the anathem, the, the, the pleroma, the, 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 the expanse, the infinity, the, infi the infinite one. So the one who comes from that space is above all, is greater than all. It's probably a better way of saying it. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So a reiteration is talking about heaven, the, the rule and reign of God. 
He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. So that's a foreshadowing of Jesus saying, like, you know, if I testified about myself, then you could, yeah, you go ahead and that. But all these other things testify about me. Whoever has accepted has certified God is truthful. So we're talking about acceptance, so receiving. And then we're talking about truth. Okay, so hang on to truth. So we've got a gift wedding truth. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives, so we're getting gift again, the Spirit. So what has God given? He's given the Spirit. Now the Spirit in the Old Testament, again, talks of the inclusion in God's purposes. So for the Old Testament, they believe that the Spirit is external, but they breathed it in. And then once they had the Spirit, once the nation of Israel, so we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about peoples. Once they have the Spirit, that means that they're included. That's the sign that they are God's people. So they talk about presence, you know, they, they always followed the, the presence around the desert. The presence was what marked them out as the people of God. So the presence of God's spirit in the new covenant, so we're talking, you know, prophetically in terms of Ezekiel and stuff like that. The new covenant, the mark of the new covenant, the mark of the people that were included in the new covenant would be the spirit. So <clears throat> he gives the spirit without limit. So there's something about an unendingness. There's an all things, there's an everything, there's a, there's a complete... Uh, uh, lavishness about the giving of the spirit the father loves the son so what's the driving mechanism behind all of this it's the love of the father and has placed all things into his hands so what is he placed into his hands all things are placed in Jesus' hands whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them so what we're talking about here so immediately setting up the next bit We've got this thing about all things, we've got something about truth, we've got something about weddings, we've got something about givingness, we've got something about the spirit that marks them out as the people of God. This is where the presence of God is, ergo, if the presence of God is here, you are the people of God. God's eternal plan was for all things, the restoration and reconciliation of all things. So we're not just talking about, oh, I've got a crazy word of knowledge for you. And that's it. That's all church has been about. My crazy word of knowledge for you. Or my crazy word of knowledge for you. And you can go and tell your friends and then everybody gets saved. God is reconciling all things. And that is just a tiny, tiny part of it. And if we fixate on just a tiny, tiny part of it, you know, we're going to have to keep going back to the well rather than knowing the well, the streams of living water that are rising up in, inside of us. And we're going to get so fixated about, like, what is God's calling for my life? If I step off, I'm going to fall off. You know, God wanted me to have the word of knowledge, but I didn't. Or I'm only called to be a apostle, a prophet, a teacher, or da, da, da. Oh, no, man, I've got the really sucky gift of helps. <laughs> you know, no one, no one writes a book about tough steps to being great at the gift of helps. So it's like, this is why I'm an awesome apostle or something. You know, well, that's, that's God's calling for my life. And I suggest God's purposes is the reconciliation of all things. So whatever love needs right now is what gift you've got. Because he's given the spirit. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So into uh, John 4 then. We're getting into the real story now. Now Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus that baptised anyway. It's really funny, isn't it? Jesus has heard that these guys thought he was being really successful. And let's just make this clear, it wasn't Jesus. Um, so Jesus wasn't the successful one. Uh, and he decided he didn't want to be associated with it, so he left the area anyway. Uh, so Jesus isn't trying to build a successful ministry. He's trying to usher in the kingdom of God. Now, he had to go through Samaria. He could have gone anywhere. But he chose to go from, through Samaria because later on we'll find, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. That's what compelled him to go through Samaria. The, the love of God. The love of the Father. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had, been, had given to his son Joseph. So okay, we've got something about Jacob. So hang on to that, this is really important. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from the journey, and he sat down by the well. It was noon. So we're going to come back to this idea of Jacob's well. But first off, what happens in the Old Testament? When there's a single guy, and a single girl, and a well. So Abraham sent out his servant and said, I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac, because I don't want him to marry any of this Canaan like that. I want you to go and find a suitable wife. So Abraham's servant goes out, and he gets to a well. 
and he sees women coming to feed their camels at the well. And he makes a deal with God, he says, if there's a woman that offers me and my, my steed a drink, then she'll be the one. And so is it Rebecca? Isaac and Rebecca, I check my notes. Yeah, Isaac and Rebecca. So Rebecca, out of everybody, comes to the well. And she offers the servant a drink and offers to water his camel as well. Bear in mind, it's midday. It's very hot and heavy work on this woman. And he says, God, this is the one for my master's son. And he says, oh, by the way, who are you? She says, well, I'm Rebecca, and I'm the daughter of so-and-so. And he knew that so-and-so was related to Abraham, so it wasn't a Canaanite and then Isaac and Rebecca get married. And so if you're taking notes, that's in Genesis 24. And then because it's Jacob's well, where did Jacob meet Rachel? He was fleeing from his brother he saw, and he comes to a well, and he's tired, and Rachel offers to water him and his steed. And immediately, it says, as he set eyes on her, he loved her. And he said to her dad, Laban, I will do anything to have your daughter. And he worked for seven years and got the other daughter. And so he worked for seven years more, 14 years he waited for her. And then in case we were fuzzy, when Moses was fleeing Egypt after killing the Egyptian, and he's fleeing through the desert, and he gets to a well, and there are these... um, Merchants that are hassling some women at the well who are trying to water their camels. And Moses stands up for these women and he meets Zipporah and she becomes his wife. What happens when a man meets a woman at a well? There's a wedding. Bear that in mind for what's coming up. Then a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Which brings up all sorts of echoes of Isaac, of Jacob, of Moses. His disciples had gone into town to get food. So let's just stop there. The disciples, being good Jewish boys, would have absolutely freaked. Jesus, a rabbi, is talking to a woman. (laughs) Wait there. (laughs) You know, Simon... You know, can you imagine what Nick would be like if I was sat in the back just talking to him? Yeah. And then let's just throw in some cultural like references in there. You know, like yeah, that'd be awkward. So Jesus sends us to the away. The Samaritan woman said, you know, she hasn't even got a name. She's a Samaritan woman. So let's just labour the point about Samaritans. So Samaritans, big uh, rivalry with the Jews. Uh, we'll come on to why that is in a minute as well, because that becomes really important. Uh, but just to give you the extent of the antagonism. In about AD 55, 60 or something, uh, there was a group of Jewish pilgrims going through Samaria, and they were slaughtered by the Samaritans, uh, as a matter of course. Uh, I've already told you this one, but at one point, uh, all of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're two major uh, religious blocks, so we might call those, you know, kind of, they're a bit like so Catholics and, and Protestants today, so they all got together in the temple and decided to utter all 300 of the curses of the Torah over the Samaritans. Just because they love them that much. Uh, so there's massive antagonism between the Samaritans. So there's, there's this idea. These are the people that are out. These are the, these are the guys that are out. They're the most outside people you could think of. A woman, a woman Samaritan at midday. She's like, she, she, she couldn't be further out. You know, all she need is leprosy and a demon. And then that is the most out person of the, of the plans of God. Uh, so Samaritan woman said to him you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan how can you ask me for a drink uh, in brackets but Jews do not associate with Samaritans the idea is is that anything touched by a Samaritan is ceremonially unclean so you can't drink from my pail because you would make that would make you unclean and I know this Jesus answered uh, now this is where the, the conversation ramps up really quick right so is it just what's going on here or is there like a conversation within a conversation going on Bearing in mind it's John, so I'd suggest that there is a very complex idea coming out here. Jesus answered it, if you knew the gift, so what's the gift? The Holy Spirit, God has given the Spirit. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you, so we're talking about the Spirit and the Son, um, (laughs) you would have asked him for a drink 
And he would have given you living water. What does living water speak of? So when um, living water uh, in John 7. Let's, uh, if, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, rivers of living water will flow within them. And just in case we're fuzzy on what John is trying to tell us, it says, by this he meant the Spirit. So when we talk about living water, we mean the Spirit. Okay, whom, uh, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the Spirit had not been given. Uh, but since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So bear in mind, what, what is given? It's the Spirit. What is living water all about? Just in case we're fuzzy, it's the Spirit. Okay, and the Spirit means the presence of God, which means... You are the people of God. So wherever the presence of God is means that you are the people of God. Jesus is in Samaria talking about the presence of God. He would have given you living water. Sir, the woman replied, you have nothing to draw with. So she's not cottoning on. Is this a disjointed thing or is this actually, is she representative of the Samaritan people or of all people, all the Gentiles? Not getting what's going on yet, but Jesus is going to work with her. Um, where can you get this living water? And living water in, uh, in Aramaic is a pun because living means you know, alive, but it also means flowing. So it's like, well, we're at a well in the desert. Where are you going to get this running water from? Not just this living spiritual water. It's like, oh, wait a minute, you're talking about a stream. There's no streams around here. Where are you going to get it from? You haven't even got anything to draw it with. Uh, are you greater than our father Jacob? Boom. So she, you've got this, this, this thing of Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Are you greater than something in our history that ties us somehow really tenuously to the purposes of God? Sorry. It's okay. Um, are you greater than our father Jacob? So she's, she's referring back to something in their heritage that ties them to say, we are kind of authentic people of God. We're not, you know, I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, who gave us this well... So Jacob, our great father, he gave us a pit. <laughs> and drank from him himself and his sons and his livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water, this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them, gift, will not thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water. Welling up to eternal life. Welling, building up to Life of the age to come, life of the Messianic age, the kingdom of heaven arrived. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to go thirsty and keep coming to this well and drawing water. So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven and she's talking about physical water. And there's this pun of living water being running water and spiritual water. So he's talking about the spirit, okay? Living water is the spirit, remember. He said, go and call your husband and come back. So we've got this well, we've got a guy, we've got a woman. We've got weddings in the air. So turn with me now. Of course, you knew I was going to go there. Uh, 2 Kings 17. Right. So 2 Kings 17, verse 24. To give you a bit of background, Israel at this time is just the northern kingdom. Judah, the one tribe of Judah, is called the southern kingdom. So this is kind of a time of turmoil. You've had David, you've had Solomon, you've had a fracturing the kingdom, their territories are shrunk. Uh, and so Judah is kind of adhering to the word of God. They've had less bad kings than the northern one. The northern one is made up of the ten tribes of Israel that kind of strayed. And then they're about to be invaded by the, the local superpower, which is Assyria at this time. The king of Assyria brought people from... Okay, so they've been exiled. So Assyria's uh, way of doing things wasn't to slaughter everybody. It was a really clever way of... Um, taking over a country because what they do is they destroy the national identity of someone so instead of killing everybody which is time consuming and dangerous work what they do is they just take all of the people and scatter them elsewhere so all of their cultural reference points have been lost to them all of their history all of their identity as a people group have been lost because all of a sudden they're amalgamated into other countries and then what they do is they bring other nations because you know if you conquer this nation you scatter them there you need to scatter these guys over here mm. so that's what Assyria are doing we could talk more about identity and tribes etc uh, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon 1 Kutha 2 Ava 3 Hamath 4 and Seravim 5 
Five nations, five tribes being brought into Samaria. So number five is really important. Settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. Now the writer of two kings is at great pains to point out. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent them lions among them. <laughs> great, God's funny isn't it? Um, And they killed some of the people. Uh, it was reported to the king of Assyria that the people ye deported resettled in the towns of Samaria, but do not know the God of that country. So this was in the time when they believed gods were territorial. Um, and, he sent, and their God has sent lions among them and is killing them off because they do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, make, make one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live at Bethel and taught how to worship the Lord. Okay, here we go. Nevertheless, each national group, so five national groups, had their own gods in the several towns where they were settled. So how many gods were there? Five national groups, five gods. Your relationship with your God is like a wedding. It's like a marriage. The Ten Commandments is like an ancient wedding contract. The way it's written. You shall have no other lovers. You you shall have no other gods before me. You'll be faithful to me. It's a wedding contract. The ancient world, they are wedded to their gods. So when we're talking about five nations in Samaria, five different gods, five different husbands in that area, and they brought back a priest <laughs> to teach them how to worship Yahweh, uh, but they didn't quite get it because there's all this mixture. So the guy you've currently got isn't really your husband. Okay, do you see where, see where I'm going with that? Uh, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you are right when you say you have no husband. So she's not just shacked up with a dude. He's making a commentary on, you kind of have the right idea about who God is. Because you've had these five previous lovers, these five previous guys. But the guy you've got now, you don't quite know, do you? And I'm here to rectify that. Is what Jesus is saying. The fact is, you've had five husbands. How many husbands? Five. Because there are five nations brought in with their five lots of gods. And the man, the God you have now, is not your husband. So what you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman says, I can see that you were a prophet. And then what she does, she talks about her ancestry. Because that's what Jesus is talking about. It's not a disjointed conversation at all. She's tying on to what's going on. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim... She's talking about, actually, I do know the guy I'm with. I do know the God I'm with. She's debating with the Son of God that she knows God better than him. You're not going to win the right. Um, but you Jews play in the place where you worship is Jerusalem. And so she's saying, well, if you're a Jew, you should be worshipping over there, territory. And we'll worship over here and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Because uh, in the end, we'll figure out which one's the right one. Uh, woman, he says, uh, believe me, a time is coming... And has come when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor on that mountain. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Okay, who remembers the story of Jacob in the desert? The, the, the ladder, Jacob's ladder. You worship what you do not know is what Jesus said to this woman. So we're still talking about Jacob. We're still talking about places that are relevant to Jacob. You know that bit where Jacob goes to sleep on a, on a rock? What a lousy choice for a pillar. Um, and he has the dream. And then he wakes up and says, Behold, what does he say? God was in this place all along, but I did not know. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We are talking about Jacob, and he realised that God was where? In this place all along. It doesn't matter if it's Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. God is in this place all along, but you didn't know. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit of truth. Remember, so going back to the end of John 3, just in case you're fizzy, you can see all these words if you you read back over. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks, the kind of lovers, the kind of brides, the kind of bride that the Father is looking for for his son at a well. And he's saying the presence of God is already here. And he's saying that you are already included. And that the son has come to court their bride. People that never thought they could possibly be the bride. 
The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming and when he comes he will explain all things to us. So something about the Messiah, they will know the Messiah, the Samaritans will know the Messiah because he will explain all things. Okay, just hang on to that because that comes up in a minute. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised, shocked, scandalised to find him talking with a woman of all people. But no one dared ask, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? So remember at the end of John 1, when the disciples are called, the disciples of John the Baptist go up to Jesus and Jesus says to them, what do you want? And it says, and they say to him, well, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. Okay, and then Philip, uh, and Andrew goes to Philip and says, come and find the Messiah, come and see. So when the calling of the disciples all revolves around, what do you want? Come and see. Okay, bear that in mind. Just then his disciples returned and supposed to find him talking to a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? So the person that's supposedly out is further ahead of the story than the guys that are supposedly in. Then leaving her water jar, because it was never about the jar, it was never about drinking the water, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see. The word come and see is, is a calling to be part, to participate, to be followers of Jesus. What happened when they, Jesus said come and see to the disciples of John the Baptist? They became his followers. What happened when Nathaniel was told to come and see, he became his follower. He became part of what Jesus was doing. He became part of the kingdom of heaven. So she goes to the town and says, come follow this guy. We're included. Come see. The man who told me all things. So what is she saying about Jesus? This guy is actually the Messiah. Because when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. Come and see the Messiah. Because he's just told me all things. He hasn't told me about my sordid past with many husbands and I'm shacking up with a guy. He told me about, we were excluded from this point because there was a mixture of gods. And now he's saying, God is in this place, but we didn't know. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town. Because of course they're going to come out of town. We've been told for millennia that we're out. That we're scum. That we are so going to get it when the day of the, Lord, the, the, the Lord's wrath comes. We're going to be the first on the swords of the Israelites. That's what we've been told for millennia. But this guy is saying, God is in this place all along. I'm going to be your bridegroom. You're going to be included. You can be, fo- you can be followers. You can be part of the kingdom of God. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can have wells of living water amongst you. You can be included in the presence of God as the people of God. That is good news. Good news isn't, well, I had five husbands, and now the guy I'm shacking, I'm a neurotrist, essentially. Oh, of course, well, we've got to go see this guy. Doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about, which is brilliant. Like, the disciples are like, what? Um, and then his disciples said to each other, Could somebody have brought him food? See, they've missed the plot completely. So Jesus had this complicated discussion with this woman. The disciples are clueless, like, what's going on? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Now, what is the will of the one who sent him? In uh, John 6, it says, all of those the Father has given, all things the, the Father has given to the Son. Okay, so all things again. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent him. Right, so Jesus' food is to do the will of the one who sent him. What is the will of the one who sent him? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all things that he has given to me, but I will raise them up at the last day. The will of the one who sent Jesus was that Jesus would have all things. If you're fuzzy about it, read Psalm 2, that all of the nations will be given to the Christ. Okay. So my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish the work. So he's finishing the work of the restoration of all things. Okay, let that sink in a bit. Jesus is finishing. What he's doing is he's about finishing the reconciliation of all things. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months to harvest. Okay, what's four months before harvest? When do you have harvest festival at schools? When do you have, when, when do people plant things? Probably about four months before September. Don't you have a saying, it's four months before the harvest, a.k.a. a backhanded way of saying, it's time for planting, not harvesting, Jesus. We're doing the thing. We're the disciples. We're doing the thing. No, 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 no. 
it's harvest time. I tell you, open your eyes so this crowd coming out of town. Open your eyes and see that these people look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. These people are coming out now to be harvested. You're not starting something, Peter, Andrew, James, John. You're not the guys that have started something. Something started in Genesis 1. In the beginning, you know where John starts? And it also occurred in Genesis 24, when this marriage happened at well. And in Genesis 28, where this marriage happened at well. And in Exodus, and then all through the Old Testament, this has all been happening. The seeds have already been planted by the Spirit. Even now, the one who reaps towards the wage and the harvest crop for eternal life, life of the age to come. Uh, so that the sower and the reaper will be glad together. Who's the sower? God. And he'll be glad because everybody, he'll have redeemed all things. And that's what makes his joy complete. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus bore the cross. This to say, the one who sows and the reaps is true. Because God has sowed and you are about to reap. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. He's not talking about, well, you know, there was another apostle that came and sowed here a little bit. And then you guys get the credit here. But you know, oh, you, know you, get to, you get to sow here and another apostle just completely not the point. The point is, is that all people have been included from the very beginning. Now you're reaping because somebody's come to usher in the kingdom of heaven. Somebody has come to tell people that they're included, that God was here all along and you just didn't know. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. So this is a story unfolding from 2 Kings 17. Uh, many of the Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony. He told me all things. That's the map I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. Um, and because of his words, many more became believers. So this is a harvesting. Many more came into the kingdom. Many believed in him and had eternal life. They say to the woman, "We no longer believe just because of what you have said. Just because Jesus explained from our history that we're actually included." But we have now experienced this for ourselves. This man is really the saviour of the world. Okay, I've kind of skipped past a lot of my notes. Um, the point is this, that we can think of God working in a really narrow way in our city. And if we don't do that, then we can beat ourselves up and we've failed and so and so. But you know what? It says in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in the hearts of all men. And people just exclude themselves. People think they're excluded. We think that there are places where God is not. We are convinced there are people that are outside of the will of God. And Jesus just comes along and stands next to that person. Sorry, Jesus, I'm going to call you an ISIS terrorist. He says, I know, I know your, your history. I know where you've come from. And I know how you believe. And I kind of know your motivations for doing what you do. I want to tell you that God is here now. And so all of that history is important. But you're included in a new future. And Jesus says uh, to the politician, I know where you've come from. I know that back in the day, so-and-so, you've learned this and that, and this is why you've become the cynical, uh, power-grabbing person that you are. I know, I know. You're included. And he goes to the, the prostitute who's hooked up on drugs just to keep her in the game. He says, you know what, I know, I know how life has failed you. I know how you've fallen into this cycle and you find it really difficult to get out. And you know what, it may take time to get you out of that cycle. But you're included. There's good news for you. And the good news isn't that I know how many people you've slept with. That's not good news. That's just me telling you the crap that's in your history. The good news is, is that doesn't make a difference on your future. Because you're included and you're empowered and you're given streams of living water. You don't have to keep returning to the same well of your history. You can have wells of living water because the Father has given me the task of reconciling and restoring all things. And unfortunately, or fortunately for you, whether you like it or not, being a politician, being a terrorist, being a prostitute, being a normal guy that just has normal failings, that just gets ticked off on a Friday because he's tired, that does not exclude you because you are part of all things. And the good news is that we've been given the message of all things. We haven't been given the message of laser beam, 
maybe the lazy mean thing works, you know? Because sometimes that's how we communicate all things. But wherever we go, say, behold, the presence of God was in this place all along, and I just didn't know. I didn't know. And then we can say to others, the presence of God was in this place all along, and you didn't know. Because our testimony is always, you know, I was once blind, but now I see. I might not know anything else. You know, the guy at the, uh, the, the, uh, the guy that gets healed with his eyes, and the Pharisees come up to me and say, well, who did it? You know, I don't know. Don't know. I was blind, so how could I see? Uh, but I think it was Jesus. I've been told it was Jesus. I don't know anything else. I don't know, you know, whatever, the, the seven laws of hermeneutics. Or I don't know all the books of the Bible. You know, I couldn't recite to you all 12 disciples. But I do know that I was once blind. But now I see. I do know that I had five husbands. And the guy that I have now isn't even a husband. I do know that I, we have worshipped as a nation. Five of the gods. And the guy, we barely know him. But we think it's something to do with this well. And we think it's to do with this mountain. And we think you guys are over there. We think, you know, we think it's about saying, you know, going to a, a Billy Graham rally and saying, Jesus is Lord. Uh, and, and you guys think it's about saying, you know, um, Salam Alaikum. You know... But it's not. I tell you that worship is going to worship in the spirit and in truth. They're going to know all things because the Messiah has come to tell them all things and all people are included in all things because he's all about the reconciliation of all things. And there's that beautiful bit at the end of Romans because I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor death nor anything can separate us from the love of God. So I believe that as we follow Jesus, that he's changing us from having this narrow well in the ground that we have to keep returning to to figure it all out. I better consult um, you know, my favourite preacher or my favourite book. Just know that the wells of living water are in us. He's changing us from having wells to having streams. And that the stream, the further we go on, we think it's just a stream. It's only. But then it becomes a river. Because God is including more people than we ever thought. That's pretty cool, God. But then it becomes a torrent. And it becomes a raging delta. And then it becomes just a vast, vast ocean that we can't even conceive the ends of. Because God has lavished this love upon us that we should be called. He's not giving us a trickle, he's not giving us a bucket, he's giving us oceans and oceans of love. Uh, I'm going to stop there, so I'm just going to keep trying to summarise what he said. Um, but yeah, go, go read John and read it for all the beauty and the depth that it is. That was great.